0: Anyway, my name's Mike. I'm excited to be with you guys this weekend. Uh, professor at Ozark Christian College. Before that, I lived in Japan for a little while. Lived there for about five years. And for those of you that are at any level involved with the mission stuff at Sunnybrook, uh, Sunnybrook is, is significant supporters of the ministry that we were part of in Japan. And, and so I've felt a, a connection with the church through that for a long time. And of course, I felt a connection with the table through my friendship with Drew and Scott. I've known those guys for years. Just met Rachel recently. But I, I got to tell you guys, it really is something special. Um, and, and I don't just say that to just sort of, you know, uh, kumbaya, let's have a good time at this retreat. I really mean it That that it is unusual and in a good way for a ministry and for a group of of young people to say, let's just get away for a couple days. And what we're going to talk about is God. Attributes of God. Um, There's lots of things that, and some of them would even be worthy, you know, but things that we could talk about that might seem more immediately applicable or gripping, like, you know, how to navigate dating and singleness and those types of things. There's a place for that. Um, You know, there'd be a place for talking about Career planning and how to figure out what to do with your life, um, or just learning about yourself. Let's go off out to a cabin and you know examine ourselves. but we're saying, my assignment is talk to us about God and attributes of God. And so I'm excited because that's a, an awesome and frankly unusual invitation. Just come talk about God. Anything about God? Because um, that's what we do, and that's what we're about. And, and I want to commend you for taking time out of your schedule and all the many things you could do uh, this weekend to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend some time with some other people and, and focus on God. So it's a privilege for me uh, to be here. I, uh, I always kind of get sentimental when I hang out with, with guys that I knew from college. I was thinking on my way down about uh, first time or first impressions of Drew and Scott. and I'd be interested to, to share those with you and see if it resonates with things you know about them. So my first, the first time I ever saw Drew was at a week of, of church camp. I was, it was the summer after my freshman year of college, but he was still a high school student, but we were sponsors together at a week of middle school, junior high camp. First time I ever see this guy. He's out on the dance floor smoking middle schoolers in this dance competition. I thought it was for the students, but then all of a sudden this sponsor gets out there, and I'll show you how it is. And he's going, and he's going hard. He was going full tilt, not holding anything back, dancing in flip-flops. I mean, that in itself is, is impressive and challenging. Um, by contrast, my first impression of Scott was a time where we were having a, a meeting with a group of men for prayer and fasting. You know, just stark contrast. In the, in the temperaments, but it's cool to hear about their partnership in ministry and, and meeting Rachel and, and just the, the leadership of this ministry and the, uh, the folks that are, are pouring their heart and mind and prayers into, into what's happening here. I'm, I'm just very appreciative and very um, impressed, and I love what God can do in our lives in this kind of a season in, in terms of college. I work with college students in my day job. And college was a, a highly transformative time in my life, personally. Setting me on a course, uh, grounding me in my faith. And, and so, in some small way, I hope to contribute something valuable uh, to you uh, these next couple days. Um, this big topic, in, in wide open opportunity to talk about a few attributes of God... My mind and, and heart kind of drifted towards the book of Isaiah. I've been reading Isaiah and thinking about the book of Isaiah. It's a long book. There's a lot uh, of background and, and a lot of material there, but incredibly rich and, and really kind of a forceful book of the Bible and an opportunity for us to really get, as, as much as anywhere in Scripture, a, a view of a big, unique, holy Loving, faithful, jealous God. It's a big God. And Isaiah actually has a difficult task as a prophet of God. He's ministering in a time in the, in the history of the nation of Israel where uh, things aren't going great. Uh, there, he, he ministered for a long season of time, uh, saw several kings come and go, most of them disregarding, the word of God, disregarding what God would have for them, Um, in most cases, ignoring the advice of Isaiah. And Isaiah's job was to just keep talking about God, to keep saying, here's who God is, here's what he's like, here's what he cares about. And in fact, when he's kind of sent off in ministry, he's told, you're going to do this, you're going to preach and preach and preach until nobody wants to hear you anymore and the city's destroyed. He had a, a tough assignment in that for a while, for a few year period, three year period. He had to preach in his underwear just to illustrate, even in his appearance, the, the, the shamefulness of what was going on in terms of people ignoring God. And so it's, it's pretty heavy. And, and even as I was preparing and thinking about uh, this awesome task, I mean... <laughs> I don't mean to be weird about it, but it's my job to talk about God for a living. But thinking about this big and righteous God, especially in these words, it's, it's just it's kind of overwhelming. And I, I want to start tonight in Isaiah chapter 6, if you want to open your Bibles and, and follow along in that way. And maybe one of the more familiar passages in the book of Isaiah, but no less... Uh, Uh, awe-inspiring, hopefully, for us, um, even if we've heard it before. But Isaiah 6 is really the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. He has a vision of God, he's sent out by God, and it's an opportunity for us to see a holy God. Um, Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched me your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So Isaiah tells us it's the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, the death of a king in the nation is a pretty big deal. It, it speaks to uh, a certain transition, a certain uncertainty of moving ahead. Is the era we're moving into is going to be as, as good or as bad as the one we've come from? What does the future hold? Who's in control? Who's in charge? What do they care about? It was a time in the nation of Israel where they were uh, keenly aware that it was distant, but it was coming ever closer. The empire of Assyria rising up, uh, striking terror in the nations around them. Taking over more territory. And it will pretty well occupy the attention of the kings to figure out how to navigate that. How to make sure that Assyria leaves us alone. In fact, one of them will will essentially sell out completely to make a treaty with Assyria. Yet in the midst of that, Isaiah says, King Uzziah died, but I saw the king. High and lifted up. And he describes this scene And he says they're seraphim. I don't know how you envisioned angels uh, through most of your life. As a kid, I guess I thought of them as the little fat babies. Do you ever see those paintings of fat baby angels? Anybody know what I'm talking about? At your grandma's house or something? Eh, Angels, they're cute. Maybe you see a ceramic angel. These angels are called seraphim, which in Hebrew means flaming ones. They themselves are... Inflamed creatures, six wings, not just two little cute fat baby wings, but six wings, one to cover their eyes and their head and protect them that way. One set there, one set over their feet, and one set to fly with. And it's one of those things, if that was the only being in the story, it would be freaky and awe-inspiring. Speaking of the big bad Assyrians, one angel, in another occasion in Scripture single-handedly kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Just one. And there's any number of them swirling around the presence of God. Living flames, whose voices boom out so loud that they shake the walls and the foundation of this building and at the sound of their voices, smoke engulfs the temple. It maybe helps put in context a little bit why almost every time an angel shows up in Scripture when talking to one of the good guys, they say, don't be afraid. Because you ought to be. If one can deal with 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, the most feared soldiers in in the known world, what can a whole group of them do? At their voice, it it would bring us to sheer terror. Yet isn't it interesting... They are absolutely fixated and enamored, and refrain is coming from them over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I, I just I don't know. I, I think about these things like it's like who's the bully in the playground? Well, but what, but it's the person the bully's scared of. That we should be thinking about these flaming spirits. We don't. I mean, they in themselves would be this awe-inspiring thing. All they have to say, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory, and that word "holy," that attribute of the holiness of God, is what we're focusing on tonight. Fifty-four times it's mentioned in the Book of Isaiah. One of those places where a word shows up over and over and over again, and you get the idea, I guess God wants us to see something about Him here. Fifty-four times, holy, holy, holy. He's referred to over and over again as the Holy One of Israel. It's interesting, a, a couple of places in Scripture talk about the uniqueness of God's holiness. Now, I want to talk about uniqueness in particular tomorrow, but, but Revelation 15.4 says, You alone are holy. Now that's a little bit confusing because other things and other people are talked about as holy. Uh, in Leviticus, over and over again, the instruments used in the temple, the tabernacle worship system are talked about as holy and are set apart as holy. This fork, you use it for this. It's not just any old fork, it's a special fork. This basin where you wash your hands and you, and you prepare yourself for the presence of God, it's a holy basin. This table that things sit on, it's, don't, don't just get any old table, it's a holy table. So there is a little bit of a challenge here. How is it that God is uniquely holy? And why does it so passionately capture the attention of these angelic beings that He's holy and other things are holy as well? And one of the things that we see emerging in Scripture is that God is uniquely holy in His essence. He is innately holy. He is set apart. He is pure. He In Him is no wrong. There is nothing false that ever comes from His mouth. There is no motive within Him that is mixed or, or, or inappropriate. There is an internal consistency from Him. Now, His holiness can be bestowed or, or things can become consecrated or sanctified. Other fancy words the Bible uses that are all related to this concept of holiness... But he alone possesses this quality of holiness. It's a little bit of an earthy analogy, but I happen to be reading today about the various titles of Meghan Markle Princess Meghan Markle, married Prince Harry. You know, before she gets married to Prince Harry, she's an American citizen, regular person. Um, but upon getting married, she becomes uh, Her Royal Highness. Duchess of Sussex, Countess of Dumbarton, Baroness of Kilkeen, Princess of the United Kingdom, Meghan Markle. Pretty good. I don't know if she's made it to Dumbarton yet, some little town in uh, Scotland. But it's interesting how in an instant, for, for no real reason other than tradition and these titles being handed down, through this Legal transaction. Of course, we believe marriage is a beautiful thing and, you know, spiritual and all those types of things. But as it relates to all this, these titles are bestowed on her, not really because of anything she accomplished. I'm not trying to take anything away from her. I'm sure she's great, brilliant, smart, whatever. I'm just saying these majestic titles are something she's given because of a transaction that's occurred. And so we can become holy. Things can become holy, but in a unique way, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty. And what's interesting is Isaiah, I mean, from what we know, is a good guy. He's dedicated to the Lord. He's been committed to God. But upon encountering a holy God, he experiences a mammoth contrast with God in himself. He says, woe to me, I am ruined. Now, if he, if he reads his Bible, if he knows the stories through the history of the nation of Israel, he understands the holiness of God is a big deal. He understands and, and maybe remembers stories like in Leviticus 10, where a couple of guys, the sons of Aaron, priests, guys named Nadab and Abihu, some weird names, but they were priests, and um, they, for whatever reason, thought, I, I don't want to do the fire thing to light the altar the way we're supposed to. We're supposed to do this fire over here. Anybody got a lighter? We'll just take care of it on our own. And so it says they took the, uh, some strange fire, some non-holy fire. God said, use this fire. They said, we'll do things how we feel. And so they brought this fire. And it says that out of the presence of the the most holy place, the presence of God, the fire of God consumed them to where there was nothing left. And God speaks through Moses, and, and he says, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. There's that word again. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Don't mess with the holiness of God. Isaiah maybe remembers um, the story of, of number 16, when a guy named Korah and his crew are starting to get a little annoyed at being out in the desert. It maybe sounds strange, but they start to be nostalgic about slavery in Egypt. They're like, you know, Moses dragged us, drug us out here in the desert. It's kind of a mess. And, you know, we're all, he even says, we're all holy people. Why is Moses acting like a leader and taking us over here and over there and all these kinds of things? And so God let Moses know, uh, anybody who wants to see the next day should move away from the tents of Korah and his crew. And it says that the ground opened up and engulfed Korah and his posse and took them down to the grave alive. And they died that day. You you speak against God, you may not see the next day. He remembers the story from Numbers 21 where people were grumbling against God and against Moses again. So sick of this manna. So sick of quail. Same meal every day. Sound like my kids. i got three little boys. They get sick of the same meals over and over again. Oh, this again. They're out there grumbling about this and that and the other thing. And so God, withdrawing His hand of protection, maybe even shuffling things along, sends venomous snakes among the camp, and they bite the people, and they die. Now, these are not like the kinds of stories you tell in ki- to kids in Sunday school, and it's not like, you know, in the little storybook thing, and like, isn't that, wasn't that a heartwarming story? But Isaiah, upon seeing a holy God, has this brilliant, Clarity about his own lack of holiness. And so, the contrast between a pure and righteous and glorious God brings him to a place where he says, I'm ruined. I, I see as clear as ever now the great chasm that exists between me and God because of my sin. And luckily, these flame, one of these flaming beings says, I got you. It's interesting because he pulls the, the, a coal from the altar, but then it says he's holding it in his hand. He's a flaming being. He can handle a coal and touches the lips of Isaiah and cleanses him. And This is all in the context of a vision, and it's, it's hard to make sense of these types of things. But this, the angel says, it's okay. Look, I have, you have been cleansed. And it's interesting that he says, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an un, I live among a people of unclean lips, and I myself have unclean lips, and it touches his lips. Perhaps we have in mind here the idea that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, the statements and pledges of commitment to God have, have been empty. See, the interesting thing about Isaiah's time is people were actually pretty religious. Religious. They, they actually, it'll, it'll say elsewhere that they were doing ceremonies that God told them to do and sacrifices. Now, they were keeping their options open and had some idols on the side and, and had some uh, uh, attempts at negotiating other ways of, of doing things. But upon realizing the deficit within himself, Isaiah says, there's no hope for me other than a cleansing touch from God's altar. And so it's, it's heavy. And I, I know we don't know each other that much. And I'm coming out here bringing out these stories of people getting killed by God. But there's an appropriate awe and fear that Isaiah feels until he's cleansed. And I realize it's, it's not you know, politically correct or convenient to us. It wasn't in Isaiah's time. To talk about a holy God. Guess what? It's never been convenient. It's an intrusion. It's a disruption. It's a shocking experience. To get a real look at God and a real look at ourselves. And to realize the shortfall. And to realize the deep need we have for a cleansing. And and so Isaiah receives this cleansing. And and while there's there's lots to cover about this kind of stuff. And there will be more for us to touch on on tomorrow with this, to some degree, Hebrews 9 picks up on the imagery of the presence of God in the most holy place. The place where fire emerged and, and consumed Nadab and Abihu. And it says that because of the blood of Jesus, moving into chapter 10, now we can enter that most holy place. That environment does not any longer need to be a cause for fear and, and terror. It should otherwise. A clear vision of God in his presence should bring us to our knees. But because of the cleansing blood of of Jesus that sprinkles our hearts, it does what a sacrifice could never do. It cleanses us truly from acts that lead to death. And it goes so far to say in, in Hebrews that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And so it's this amazing thing that the holiness of God is something that could bring a person to feel like they're within an inch of facing death and then be something that we can boldly approach. And what I'm getting at with that is that the cleansing must really have been effective. See, some of us deep down have this nagging Suspicion that maybe God doesn't really approve of us. He doesn't really like us. I love that song we sang about the worth that we have coming from his statements about us, not from our own innate qualities, not from our talents, not from our our abilities. Because if left to ourself, woe to me, I'm ruined. It probably was written later, but Psalm 130 says, If our sins were counted against us, who could stand in the presence of God? The answer? Nobody. And so the holiness of God draws a a sharp and perhaps painful attention to our lack of holiness. But the cleansing of Christ speaks to the... And the promise of being able to approach the throne of grace speaks to how thoroughly we are really cleansed. The cleansing is legitimate. And some of you have, have nagging feelings of guilt and uncertainty about God's approval of you and and maybe you feel an occasional relief when you're you know on Instagram and somebody posts some inspirational thing about how you're enough and you're pretty enough already and you're God's princess or you're his king or and you're looking within yourself to hopefully feel okay. And no amount of that will ever make you okay. It's not it's not I don't know you. I just know you're a human and all of us are in this same plight. But the cleansing work of Christ makes us so pure, so clean, that we can boldly approach this holy presence. And so, what does this do for us? It's interesting what it does for, uh, for Isaiah. It propels him into service. He's cleansed, and then he's asked, Why now? God says, Who will go for us? Who will testify to my Wicked people. Who will testify to the people that, that um, honor me with my, their lips but their hearts are far from me? Who will go talk to these people who, who um, sacrifice things to me but the, the smell of the sacrifice is wretched to me because of how out of step they are with my heart? And, and he says, here I am, send me. And there's something that can happen in our hearts, when we, when we hear this, this idea that holy, God is holy, is no longer bad news or scary news, but as, as good news. It, it builds a confidence in us, it builds a resilience in us. And, and hopefully, it builds a sort of perseverance in us that makes us actually have victory in, in realms of, of struggle with sin. I mean, Isaiah's acknowledging I'm sinful. And each and every one of us are sinful. I don't need to prove that to most of you. I'm guessing if you're here, you you know that there's mistakes you've made. But a lot of us are in the business of management of immediate consequences of sin, rather than being propelled by a vision of the holiness of God. So I remember being a high school kid in a youth group. I was told, you shouldn't have sex with people you're not married to. I know that sounds very old-fashioned now. Well, that's what that's what I heard you were supposed to do, and I and I tried to do that. And the rationale, the reasons were because if you're, if you're not careful, you get an STD, you get somebody pregnant, and so I kind of heard that as as long as we can manage those potential negative consequences, it's fine. Now I I'm happy to say that I waited until till marriage, and my wife and I both waited till marriage. And it's you know, like I said, it sounds very old-fashioned now, but We've never been that, you know, with somebody else that's funny, like I'm embarrassed to say it or something. We never had sex with anybody besides each other. But is there something more than careful you don't get an STD, have an unplanned pregnancy, mess yourself up a little bit emotionally that we can get from Isaiah 6: a vision of a holy God. Why would I ever want to do anything to dishonor him? I mean, He's He, the angelic beings that they themselves are awe-inspiring are inspired by the holiness of him. In Hebrew thought, the repetition of something in three, we can, we can get this pretty intuitively, but for them, it's, it speaks to the completeness and the thoroughness and the, the totality of his holiness. He's so holy. Why would you do this? Why would you do something that he said, this is not my plan for you? Uh, why would you do something that you think, I can kind of manage the consequences of this, even though it doesn't please God? It's fascinating people um, who, whose stories, where they succeed in their resistance to sin. Um, somebody like Joseph, who was in, in Potiphar's household and his, his master's wife was seducing him. And he said, how could I do such a thing and sin against God in that way? He doesn't say, how could I sin against Potiphar? How could I... I might lose my job. I might go to prison. These consequences are negative. He says, how could I do such a thing and dishonor God? And, and so this vision of the holiness of God propels Isaiah into service. And what my hope is, is that it propels us into an authentically holy life. Um, I, I unfortunately have friends and acquaintances I can think of whose approach to holy living was this management of consequences, and eventually it caught up with them. I visited with a guy recently who worked for a Christian organization and uh, was very good at what he did, and I'll try to leave enough details out to not make it known who I'm talking about, but I would guess many of you actually without even ever knowing his name, have been impacted by his work um, through, through Christian conferences that he helped creatively uh, program and, and execute. And, and he was in full-time ministry dedicated to God. But he was managing consequences of sin in his life. He got pretty deep into pornography. And and in his words, he said, I I didn't struggle with it. I just did it. I stopped struggling and just gave in. And built a a secret life independent from his spouse um, where where he would just go away and give in. And he was able to manage the consequences. And in his way of describing it, he, he said, you know, and God was blessing what I was doing. There was good things happening. The consequences didn't seem so detrimental. So things kind of progress, and he starts, uh, because of the distortion of his mind, he starts having approach, an approach to, to, to other ladies besides his wife that are kind of flirtatious and kind of chumming the waters to see what bites. And long story short, he ends up having multiple uh, incidences of infidelity, cheating on his wife with, with two different uh, ladies, all under the umbrella of the ministry he was working in. Christian organization. The, the people he was having an affair with were working at that Christian organization. And eventually it came out. It meant the end of his career with that organization or any organization connected to it. His wife has stayed with him, um, but I got to tell you, it was a really incredibly refreshing conversation. Because he's he's had his his moment, his Isaiah six moment. Woe to me! I'm unclean, and he's received that cleansing from God. And it's it's pretty neat to see how even in the months that have transpired, he has begun to use that as something where he can mentor younger guys, and say, let me just be brutally honest with you and talk about something that most of you are ashamed to talk about, and, but here's where the path I went on and how it almost ruined my life. Grace, uh, Except for the grace of God and the forgiveness of his spouse, he would be totally left on his own. Um, sometimes it, it has higher stakes. I can think of another guy who... Um, who was the residence director of the dorm that Drew and I lived in. So he worked at the college. He was a pastor preaching on the side, living for God, doing all these kinds of things. Right now he is in the middle of a 15-year sentence in prison for molesting two children. Christian minister. Preaching, counseling people, guiding them on how to live a good life. Um, ends his, his marriage, ends his life as a free person. His father has died since he's been in prison. But before he went to prison, I was part of a group of men that were kind of gathered around this guy to just speak truth into his life, to try to make sure he didn't kill himself because a lot of people in that situation do. And, and not, to, not to say anything he did was okay, but just to be a presence in his life. It was fascinating to hear him unravel, how does a person get to this? How does a person who grew up in a Christian home, who, who uh, you know, went to Bible college, who's been a preacher, how does, how, how does that happen? What's the autopsy report on somebody who's now going to prison for child molestation? And I'm grateful that in spite of his lawyer wishing he hadn't shared so much, he shared a little of his story. How does that happen? Sin management, consequence management, a lack of an authentic vision of the holiness of God, and the cleansing power of Christ. He actually said, I want you to share this story with people. Because if Drew was here, he could testify to the same thing. This guy was one of the most legalistic people you'd ever meet. I remember when, um, and this is going to age me a little bit here, I was in college when the the show Survivor started airing. And now we're like in season, you know, 532 or something. It started when we were in college, and it was this kind of new phenomenon of this, uh, you know, competition reality show. And I remember him pontificating about how, you know, ungodly it is it's you know it's utilitarianism you know voting people off the island if they don't have enough value it's just so you know low and earthy and i remember him ranting about homosexuality at random times you know the gays they're taking over our culture and it was just there was this rigid moralism to him yet this is the guy that ends up with a 15 year sentence for child molestation it's because the authentic burning passion to honor a holy God and to receive the grace of God, it was not in his heart. It was consequence management. And in his case, it caught up with him. And his kids won't have anything to do with him. His wife won't have anything to do with him. She left him. And he's in a protective custody unit in one of the state penitentiaries. Because even other prisoners don't want to have anything to do with a person who's molested kids. There's a pecking order in prison. Guys like him are at the bottom. How does that happen? And so, you know, I'm not saying, unless you get this sorted out this weekend, I know where it ends up for you. I'm saying, how is it possible that people do the Christian thing, do the church thing, do the religious thing, sing all the songs, maybe even be the one preaching the sermons, and yet not be transformed. That's part of what Isaiah's plight was. That they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah was given the gift of, in a sense, a a spiritual near-death experience. He he had his wake-up call then. So he could say, unless you cleanse me, my situation is hopeless. And out of that crucible moment, he has the confidence and strength to go stand out in his underwear and tell people to get straight with God. You know, that's part of what I love about this, is that a person who's had an encounter with a holy God and came out alive to tell about it, what can anybody else do to him? You know, oh, you didn't, you didn't like my message? Oh, you didn't agree with everything I said? Oh, I'm unpopular? All right, I don't care. I'm alive to tell about seeing a holy God. There's a confidence that I think we long for. There's this inner strength, an authentic inner strength. Not because of a carefully managed exterior. Not because of a a well-curated social media account. Not because of looking the part and talking the part and acting the part, but because of having that real encounter with a holy God and having been cleansed. And so... Maybe this is a, a weekend for you to, to receive a cleansing. Maybe, maybe this is a time to say, I, I'm, re- I'm, I'm getting a wake-up call considering a holy God. And I'm not trying to scare you into anything or pressure you into anything or manipulate anything in terms of people confessing their sins to each other, but maybe that's what part of this weekend can be for you is saying, I want to get right with the holy God. Maybe for you, you say, I, I need to believe that cleansing is real. I, I've got guilt, I've got shame, I've got a nagging sense that I'm not good enough, and, and you need the, the good news that... Isaiah lived to tell about it because of the cleansing coal from the altar. We live to tell about it because of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and part of my hope is that maybe we become better worshipers. Join in the, the, with the voices of the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A vision of God that's, that's majestic and captivating. Um, there's an author that wrote a book many years ago. I haven't even read it, but the title is enough for me. It just says, your God is too small. You know, and I've got to save some of this because I want to talk about some of this tomorrow morning. But for some of us, God is useful. He's in his little compartment. And there's enough, that, enough of him in our life that we feel all right. But a vision of a holy God, it's, it's, it's gripping. It's, encom- it's all-encompassing. It's, it, it radically alters the course of your life. And so maybe that's what this can be for you. A holy God that kind of reorients everything else. What else is important? What else is significant? What else stresses you out? Um, the, the quantity of college students, I try to stay up on these things because of, of my day job, the quantity of college students, it's, it's a, a sociological phenomenon that we're right in the middle of, that has anxiety and depression, is just ballooning. Um, the, the dean of admissions for Stanford actually wrote a book and, and talked about this the, because she's been doing it for over 20 years. And she says the, 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 the mental and social and emotional issues of, of young people in our day, there's, there's an instability that I hadn't seen before. And I'm not interested in even figuring out why or making you feel bad about anything. I'm just saying maybe part of the answer is a vision of a big God. A holy God. In the year King Uzziah died, he saw the king. And that settled things for him. A holy, a, a, a God that is, is it, it demands your attention. And I don't mean to minimize mental illness and anxiety and, and depression and those kinds of things. But I can't help but think that, that some of the causes are the fixation and attentiveness to things that are something less than God. That are smaller than God. That are in a roundabout way less threatening than God. But have no promise of a cleansing. Like God does. So just a big God. A God that is worth screaming about. If you're a a seraphim. A a God that is worth falling at your knees and worshipping. Not just a cute little useful God. Not just a compartment of my life, but a holy God. And so I don't know what, what all that looks like for you, but I'm just trying to throw enough out there to, to create some opportunity for you to ponder. And I, again, I realize this is heavy. I mean, if we hang out other times, you know, we can laugh and, and joke around. But Isaiah 6, a holy God is worth feeling some sense of awe and, and fear and yet magnetism towards. And so we're going to have a moment to, to, in a moment here, we're going to have a chance to break up and visit. And, and I guess I would just ask you to discuss what would it change about your life if you saw God as holy? How would you worship? How would you read your Bible? How would you combat sin? How would you engage in your, your life decisions? If you had a vision of a holy God, so let me pray, and then we'll have an opportunity to move into a time of, of fellowship and, and discussing. God, I thank you for this vision that Isaiah recorded and shared. I thank you that you chose to put it in your, in your scriptures for us. And while it's heavy and it's, it's not immediately uplifting to consider the fact that upon encountering a holy God, if left to our own sin, we would be ruined. It'd be the end for us. Um, if based on our intelligence and holiness and uh, talent and hard work, we were, we were judged on whether or not we could, we could stand in your presence or not, each and every one of us would fail. Yet because of the cleansing blood of Christ, we can boldly approach your throne. And I pray that a vision of your holiness would compel us and propel us in the same way that it did for Isaiah. That he would be willing to stand in the face of kings and say, you're not really the king. That he would, that he would call priests and, and prophets to, to the, to back to the faithfulness that they ought to have. In part because he had seen the Lord high and lifted up and that was enough for him. When, when gripped by that vision, he was able to withstand all kinds of opposition and shame because he knew that, I want to be on that, on that God's team versus being on anybody else's team. And I pray that we would have that same type of devotion to you and that same confidence in you and that same peace with you, um, even in the face of your brilliance and your glory and your holiness. So cleanse our hearts, sprinkle us afresh with the healing touch that comes from your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.